Amen. It's great to be back with you today, and I'm delighted uh, to worship with you and have the opportunity to open God's Word with you. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Psalm 88. Psalm 88, this is probably the saddest song in the Bible. It ends as it begins in grief, sorrow. The last word in Hebrew is darkness. Darkness is my closest friend, some translations say, or my closest friend or companion is darkness. Let me invite you to notice, uh, we've read the psalm, but catch that opening uh, at the very top, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonoth, which I don't know what that means. It's a musical expression of some kind, a a masculine of, and here's the name of the author, Heman, or Haman, Haman probably, the Ezraite. And so he begins, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. And having heard it, you know there's so much lamentation, sorrow, distress in the experience of this psalmist, this believer, this music and worship leader in the kingdom of God. And so we need to think about these things, um, especially in light of what other religions and the culture of our day says. Uh, you know, some religions try to say that uh, suffering is an illusion, pain is, is just uh, all in your imagination, or it's, it's unreal in some way, and I always wonder what they say to themselves in the darkness when they hit their shin on the edge of their bed at midnight. Uh, you know, pain's an illusion. I'll just pretend that didn't happen. Or uh, maybe more poignantly, of course, what, what, what do folks who think that way say at the graveside of a beloved one. And then there's, of course, others who will say, you know, others um, uh, will say, even in the Christian community, believe, trust, and you won't suffer. You know, your pain is your own fault because you're not trusting, and if you would just believe and trust, it wouldn't have happened, and, and if you would believe now, it will go away. It's interesting that didn't actually work for Jesus very well, did it, or the Apostle Paul. And then there are some misleading evangelicals will say things like their presentation of the gospel is something like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and God does love, (laughs) and his plan is marvelous, but it can be pitched in such a way as though if you come to faith in Jesus, all you will ever sing is I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, and I'm so happy so very happy, right? And, and never will you sing the blues, like the blues of Psalm 88. It's a little unrealistic. And here we have this man named Haman the Ezraite, author of Psalm 88. We know from the book of Chronicles that he was the father of 14 boys and three girls, Uh, He was one of the choir directors appointed by King David to lead the congregation of Israel in praise and worship. He was both a singer and musician, and uh, I just want to say I refuse to indulge the sentiment that, well, he was prone to depression either because he had so many kids 
or because he had a musician's temperament. We don't really know that from this text. What we do know is that he's a believer in Jesus, and he's in this deep, dark pit. And it's a reminder that service doesn't immunize Christians from suffering. So we need to think about this experience that he had. And it's hard to read our own experience when we're in it. It's hard to sometimes understand the mysterious providence of God when things are hard. William Cooper, and I bring this before you now at the end, I'm going to bring him back up. William Cooper, the hymn writer, he gave us a hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You can't see the feet, right? He's hidden behind the clouds, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. God has bright designs for his people, but he's formulated them, poetically speaking, some in, in, in in deep, dark minds. And so he goes on to say, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let me think of that image. He's saying, you know, Christians, we, we hold a stem and there's a bud, and the, the smell of that bud sometimes is, it's bitter. When it finally at last flowers, it'll be sweet. Such is the experience of Christians at times, and that's what we have before us this, this afternoon or evening. And so, let me I invite you to walk our way through this uh, psalm, and let me give you an outline. Apologize it didn't make it into the bulletin, that's on me. Notice in verses 1 and 2, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see the appeal that he makes as he cries out to God. And then in verses 3 to 9, he rehearses the anguish he feels. And then in 10 to 14, uh, the argument he uses as he talks to God about his situation, and then the answer he receives at the end in verses 15 to 18. So the appeal he makes, the anguish he feels, the argument he uses, and the answer he receives. Notice in the first place then, in verses 1 and 2, what's he doing? He's praying. He's praying, but as you see in the psalm, he doesn't feel heard. Verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. If you look down at the end of verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. But he doesn't feel heard. He doesn't feel that God has answered his prayer, his cry. He hasn't lifted him out of that pit. And we should pause there and realize that there are seasons of life in the lives of, of some believers, certainly, where it seems to them that their prayers aren't heard. And thankfully, this psalm reminds us of that. Because if it wasn't the case, um, if, 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 there would be a cause for utter and complete despair. If you were going through a season in life when, when you feel like your prayers aren't heard, and then you're told that the prayers of God's people are always heard, always answered, then you would begin to what? You would begin to doubt that you're even a believer in Jesus, that God doesn't care about you. But godly believers at times feel like, well, their prayers are falling on deaf ears, 
or, or they feel like, you know, heaven is, a, is, is made of brass and it's all bouncing back at them. Um, notice verse 14, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Now, there's more to be sure in the Bible that can help interpret our experience in these kinds of situations. But live for a moment in his experience. And if you've never have, certainly don't dismiss it. He's praying and praying and he's burdened and he's sorrowing and he's hurt. And he doesn't feel hurt. Maybe for many of you, you've, you've prayed and prayed and prayed for a loved one's conversion and it hasn't come. Maybe you've received a, a terrible a medical prognosis from a doctor that, of impending death, and, and you've asked, Lord, take it away, Lord, heal me, and you, you haven't received a, a miracle or relief. And it's, it's helpful, isn't it? It's helpful to have in the Bible a psalmist who understands great sorrow, and, uh, and then to be reminded that, therefore, we should be sensitive to one another if our brothers and sisters are living this kind of experience. That's the first thing. Uh, the appeal he makes, he cries out, he doesn't feel heard. And so verses 3 to 9, feel that anguish. I mean, Haman here shares with other psalmists brutal honesty. He's brutally honest about his situation. And that's, uh, we might remind ourselves, that's a, that's a, that's a good model for all who lead in worship, all who write songs, all who play music, all who lead in singing, all who preach sermons. Not that every time you do so, you bring all your baggage out before everybody, don't get me wrong, but we don't have to fake joy before the people of God and pretend it's happy, happy, happy all the time. We don't have to come to church and say, it's okay. Everything's great when everything's really not. And here he writes a psalm that doesn't resolve. Did you notice that? It, so many of the psalms that we read, there's lamentation, there's sorrow, and then, and, then, and then I cried out to you, and it will say, you delivered me, you healed me, you helped me, praise the Lord, it will end, or thank the Lord for his steadfast love, it will end. And how does this psalm end? Well, darkness is my closest companion. It's, uh, it's good for us to have a psalm like this. It, it's probably also um, a mercy that we only have one psalm like this of the 150. But we need psalms like this. And so, uh, notice, notice that anguish, verse 3. I mean, he feels like he's dying. My soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol, the realm of the dead. At the end of verse 4, he feels weak. I'm a man who has no strength. I'm just empty. Verse 5, he feels unsupported, like one set loose among the dead, he says, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. He feels far from the Lord, distant from the Lord. He's, he's lonely in this place. He's all alone, he feels. And, and maybe you've felt that. It's entirely possible to feel that lonely, even sitting here tonight in a crowd, 
to feel estranged from your spouse, your, your kids, your family, even the congregation of the saints as well as the Lord. Uh, and and, and to, to think to yourself, God is far from me. You may know that He's not, according to other Scripture passages, but it feels as if He is. Now, how did he get that way? Is this some tragic accident of history in his experience? The answer is no. Verses 6 to 9. How did I get here? Notice his language. You, and he's talking to the Lord. You have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. Why am I suffering this burden? Notice verse 7. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with your waves. Verse 8, why, why am I all alone in this? You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. End of verse 8, why can't I get past this? I am shut in so that I cannot escape. And there's no apparent hope of changed circumstances. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you, he says, every day, and it just keeps going on. His experience is terribly dark. We all might, if we've never been in this darkness, give thanks to the Lord that he spared us from it. It's very different from that view of, uh, of God and providence and theology of uh, the very uh, famous in our generation, Rabbi Harold Kushner, who wrote, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, he, he would say, look, you know, sometimes bad things just happen to good people. You're a good person. God has nothing to do with it. He'd love to help you out, but frankly, you know, he can't. He's not in control of all things. He really can't come to your aid. And so bad things happen to good people. And if you would just come to realize that God's not in control of everything, that he's not in control of your experiences or circumstances, then you'll have relief. That, 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 that somehow it's supposed to be helpful to think trouble is coming my way, but God can't do anything about it. Or that trouble is in my experience, but God can't meet me and walk with me in it. Or that on the back end of trouble, God had nothing to do to rescue me from it, and he can't spare me future trouble, and he certainly can't, can't organize the world in such a way that one day the promise is true, I will never have trouble. But I, don't, I don't see hope in that at all. The, the hope that we have is that God is in control of all things, and as we know in the gospel, that God is our loving heavenly Father who spared not His own Son on our behalf to make us His own. And the psalmist knows that God is sovereign here. He knows it like Job knew it. I mean, in Job's own suffering, uh, he knew God was in control, and he, he never denied that. I mean, I mean, think when, when Satan killed all his children with God's permission, what did he say? He said, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When he was afflicted with terrible sores on his body by the permission of God and the activity of the enemy, 
and his wife challenges him, why don't you just go ahead and curse God and die? He replies in chapter 2, verse 10, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips, the scripture says. He knows that God's in control, like Jesus. Remember, Jesus, as he's about to be brutally treated and crucified, he says to Pilate, what? You wouldn't have authority to treat me like this unless that authority was given to you from God. I could at any moment call uh, legions of angels to my rescue, but that's not why I came. And so like Jesus and like Job, the psalmist knows that God's in control and he has freedom to cry out his complaint to the God who is God not only in heaven above, but on the earth below. We need to know this because to whom else will we go for help in our trouble? Whom else can we turn to for help in these kinds of situations? We need to know, as Jesus said, that not a sparrow falls to the ground but by the will of our Father, and even your very hairs are numbered. What's he saying? Sparrows fall to the ground. They die, they drop, or the cat bats them out of the sky, whatever. And yet your heavenly Father's involved in that, and now your hairs keep falling out too. And they keep dropping to the ground. And your heavenly Father's involved in that too. And then he goes on to say, of course, that, that you are much more valuable than many sparrows. His point, though, is that your father is sovereignly in control of all things. So take your anguish to him and not somewhere else. And, and I, I, I think pastorally it may be helpful just to point out some of those places I think that we're tempted to take our sorrows. One very obvious one is to drown our sorrows and drown them in alcohol. And that for a variety of reasons, is dangerous. One of which, of course, is that it's actually a depressant. Yes, there is the wine that makes glad the heart of man and the social lubricant, and, and, and it's a symbol of joy. But, you know, if you're in a dark place all alone, drinking deeply, it's a depressant that only makes that worse. We drown our sorrows or we, we take medications that do likewise. To, to get us out of depression, to always make us happy, we think. And it's true that Proverbs 31, 6 and 7 actually commends it when it says, give strong drink to the one who's perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. It's a kind of medicinal thing at the very end of life. But the unintended consequence of habitual use, of course, is that it can be numbing to our ability to think clearly, or to feel sadness, or to grieve evil when it's entirely appropriate to do so. My, my point is, whether it's alcohol or the treatment of a physician via drugs designed to lift you out of depression, and, and I'm not in any way denying that sometimes there are chemical imbalances, there are reasons, and there are God-given ways in which physicians can help us in that. I, I am simply saying, be careful that what you're taking doesn't make you always happy and, and keep you from ever experiencing life as, as it is, a life in which we ought to grieve our losses and our crosses, a life in which we ought to feel with and for others. 
and sadness. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And no servant is above his master. But there are other ways we, um, we, ha- we manage our problems, aren't there? Sometimes we just let our tongues loose and complain, uh, you know, everywhere we are and to everyone around us. And I, I would just say we ought to be, be cautious about the affirmation of others that strengthens a bitter spirit. I mean, it's one thing to be honest with God, and we always ought to be, and honest with trusted friends, and that's not wrong, but it's another thing to seek affirmation that your resentment of God is entirely appropriate. That's the caution. Or some of us, we just never acknowledge the burden, right? We embrace stoicism. Uh, We say in the midst of just terrible, horrible things. It's all good. It's all good. It's no big deal. Right? Put on a happy face. Keep up your reputation as a good, happy Christian. And what the psalmist is teaching us here is that we actually ought to take our anguish to the one who is Lord over all things. The Lord who afflicts us. Anguish, that kind of anguish and taking it to the Lord is, is actually a sign of true faith. Like verse 14, oh Lord, why do you hide your face from me? He's not unbelieving. He's believing. That's why he's talking to his God about this. I mean, only a believer gets worked up about the Lord hiding his face and then wrestles and argues with God about it. So that's the second thing I want you to see. And then I want you to notice the argument that he makes to the Lord, and, and here's, here's it in brief form, and then we'll look at it a little more closely. And he says, Lord, I want to praise you, but I can't do that if I'm dead. Lord, I want to praise you from the grave, but how am I going to tell about your faithfulness and mercy if I'm dead and gone? So please answer me. And uh, as my old pastor pointed out to me, it's, it's interesting here that God will do what, what the psalmist thinks he can't do. But do you, do you see that language in verse 10? Lord, he says, will you perform wonders for the dead? And if you know the rest of your Bible, absolutely he will perform wonders for the dead. End of verse 10, will the departed spirits rise up to praise you? Well, yeah, in the resurrection, absolutely. Uh, Verse 11, will your steadfast love be declared in the grave? It was declared in the grave of God's beloved son, Jesus. End of verse 11, will your faithfulness be shown in Abaddon or the abyss in the depths of hell? Yes, it will. My son endured its suffering for you. Verse 12, are your wonders known in darkness, he asks? Yeah, Jesus experienced deep darkness, even a deeper darkness upon the cross than this musician experienced. End of verse 12, will your righteousness be known in the land of forgetfulness? Absolutely, yes, it will. And that actually, so when you, when you take the larger picture of Scripture, of course, and living on this side of the cross of our Lord and His death and resurrection, we have a much clearer hope. Paul's words in 
the Corinthian reading. Much clearer hope. It's not that the Old Testament saints didn't have hope. It's not that Old Testament saints aren't saved or won't rise from the dead with God's people, none of those things, but they looked forward as through a glass darkly, even darker than the glass through which we see as we await one day to see face to face. And so the psalmist is in such despair, though, he can't, it seems, sense these things. I, I, I mentioned William Cooper, the hymn writer. God moves in a mysterious way. Let me tell you a little bit about William Cooper. He, he, his life was unimaginably difficult. He, his mother died a few days after giving birth to, I think it was a, a younger brother. And he was young at the time, and the maids in the home um, said to him that his mother had just gone on a journey, and she was going to come back. And he says, I knew that wasn't true. I knew that she was dead. But they so persisted in telling me this, that she wasn't dead and was going to come back, I began to believe it. And could you imagine the, the, the doubling or really exponential sorrow of that? And then, um, as many in England did, and many a grieving widower, I suppose, has done in places. His father shipped him off to boarding school at the age of six, where he was horribly abused by other children. I won't describe that in detail, but it was terrible. As a, as a young adult man, he fell in love with a woman whose father permitted them to see each other, but then, having fallen in love and, and hoped to be together for a lifetime, he forbade their marriage. Both he and she went on to be single the rest of their lives. Uh, he went into business, apprenticed in law, suffered severe anxiety about his work. It was, he was just, he just terribly anxious about having to speak and give arguments in public and in, in government service as he was doing, and he says, day and night I was upon the rack, lying down in horror, rising up in despair. And it seems as though severe mental distress uh, overcame him. If you know his story, he attempted suicide on at least three occasions. He was then sent to live at St. Albans, which was uh, a place of compassionate care under a physician who uh, was uh, incredibly merciful to the mentally ill, as they called them. And, and, uh, and there at St. Albums, he read the Bible, he heard the gospel, he caught a glimpse of Romans 3.25 about justification through faith in Jesus and restoration and peace with God. And he says, immediately I received strength to believe in the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. And slowly over time, his, his health improved, and uh, they they um, let him leave the hospital. He went to live with a pastor and his family where he made friends with the now famous, wasn't nearly so well known then, John Newton. 
both pastor and hymn writer, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And they become great friends together. He, he labored under Newton in, in ministry within their congregation and community. They wrote hymns and even a hymn book together. But depression came around again and again. And in late 1772, he wrote his final hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And about three weeks later, a great cloud of mental darkness enveloped him. He had a dream one night. And, and uh, it, it almost utterly destroyed him, mentally and spiritually. He never uh, would indulge the full contents of that dream, but through this dream, which he chose to believe, he came to believe that he was utterly forsaken by God without any hope of salvation at all. After that dream, he never denied the faith. He believed the promises were true. He believed the gospel was true. He believed that the Lord had been gracious to him and saved him and forgiven him. And yet he believed, and he believed that the Lord held on to his own. And yet he began to believe that there was one exception to the Lord's faithfulness, and that was he himself, and that he was going to be eventually in a lower place in hell than even Judas. He, he became convinced that God's promises no longer applied to him, that he was the one exception among God's elect. Really, obviously, a very complicated spiritual problem uh, and, and, and other mental problems as well. Scholars uh, believe that he really went mentally insane, we might call it now. He, he, uh, he thought butcher's meat got from a grocer was actually human flesh, and people were trying to feed that to him, and he just couldn't be persuaded otherwise. I mean, because you could see how, how, how things really got wonky in his experience. And my point is, of course, that even genuine believers can be in such dark places and pits that they just see no reason for hope. And yet, that really underscores what a marvelous hope we have in the promise of the resurrection where faith will be made sight, where the diseased will be made whole in body and mind, and where the depressed will be freed forever to experience lightness and joy. So he makes this argument to the Lord, Lord, I mean, if if I end up in the grave, how's anybody going to praise you? Save me, Lord. Help me, Lord. And he receives an answer, verses 15 to 18, but I don't think it's the answer that I think we'd have wanted to receive if we were in his shoes. He says, afflicted, verse 15, and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your tears. I am helpless. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Here he is, day after day, pouring out his heart to the Lord. And here he is, day after day, waiting for relief. And the answer is more of the same. He's still in it. Things have not turned great. There aren't always happy endings in this life for the people of God. God has not promised 
that you will go to heaven, right, on flowery beds of ease. There is such a thing as unrelieved suffering in this lifetime's experience. And we wait for the day when it shall be no more. It's tempting for Christians to think that God owes us a happy life or an easy life, but He doesn't owe us that. It, it can certainly be a blessing, but the truth is, if you think about folks you know who've only ever enjoyed ease and happiness, it can also be a kind of curse. Derek Kidner says the withholding of an easy life is no proof of God's displeasure, just as a happy life or the possession of riches is no proof of His approval. And that's because we know that this world is not how it's supposed to be. Things are so often upside down. But we also know this world is not all there is. When William Cooper finally died 27 years after that experience, his friend John Newton remarked, I was glad when I heard of it. He suffered much here for 27 years. But eternity is long enough to make amends for all. I believe, and there's disagreement about it, I believe Cooper in that split second as his soul left this world of misery and met his Savior, and I believe this in part because uh, those who witnessed his death said the expression on his face in death was a light countenance, but also because of what he had, in whom he had trusted that he proved true what he elsewhere wrote when he wrote in another hymn, the saints should never be dismayed nor sink in hopeless fear. For when they least expect his aid, the Savior will appear. That, of course, is the promise of eternal life and the return of Jesus and our rising to meet him and forever to be with him. And so we close in hope. We close with hope not only because of the end of the story and the death and resurrection and, and return of Jesus and His promises, but there's really actually hope in this psalm. I, I hope I didn't lead you astray on that. What's, what's the hope? Well, in verses 1 and 2, I mean, think what He's saying. Oh, Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before You. He remembers that His help and His hope is in God, who has become to Him a Savior, and no matter what else happens in this world, that can never be taken from him. And then at the end, he's still praying. He's still talking to God. He's still looking to God to come to his aid and sustain him. And in the very doing of that, God is sustaining him. And that in some ways is the message of Hebrews chapter 4. 14 to 16, about the Lord Jesus, right? Where, where he's, it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. So then he says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What he's saying is when you are at the end of your rope, when you have nowhere else to go, when you have no earthly hope of help, you always have help and hope in Jesus. 
He always lives to intercede for you. He makes wide the door of heaven that from the throne of grace you may receive mercy and help in your time of need. And it may be that it's the mercy and grace that keeps you holding on to the one who holds you more strongly than you hold him. It may not get you out of darkness here and now, but it will get you face to face with him there and then. Put your hope in him. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, you know uh, the conditions of our hearts, the insecurities and fears and anxious thoughts. You know all our sorrows, our losses, our crosses in this world of sin and misery, which the fall has made us all heirs to. Thank you that you're not a God who is far off, but a God who has come near. In the blood of Christ upon a cross, and a God who by His Spirit comes near even into our hearts that Christ in us is the hope of glory. Thank you that you're a God who comes near in this table, in the bread and wine, to reassure us that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. And I pray that you would sustain then the weary by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.